Also, once again this week, I want to remind everybody that uh, we cover your prayer requests. Because every Thursday we get together uh, for a Bible study, and at the end we have a prayer meeting. And we'd like to pray for whatever it is you'd like us to pray for. So let us know. Um, this happens to be on our website on the home page. You can click on that, and you can enter it in right there. There's also a box in the foyer where you can write it down and put it in there. I would never do that because many of you know what my handwriting looks like. And poor Steve, when he's opening it, he says, what does he want to pray? So if you have good handwriting, you can do that. But in any event, again, we do crave your, your prayers so that we can really um, be connected with what's going on in your life and also to be able to go to the Father for our brothers and sisters. That's what he wants us to do, and we have an opportunity to do that as a group on Thursdays. So if you also please join us whenever you can for that Bible study. All righty, the title of today's message is very unusual. Yeah, I know, everyone's looking at me. What is that? New Lost Lulu. We'll get into that. It has to do with, um, we're going to look at the background of the city of Corinth in the first century and how that influenced the church and the saints there. And we're going to see some qualities about that time, that city in that time. And if you're paying attention, you'll start to see some parallels between what was going on in Corinth in the first century and what's going on in the United States in this century. So if you look at that, maybe you can start to figure out a little bit more about what that might be. But we'll get to that pretty soon, actually. Well, last week we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we saw that Paul went out of his way to make sure that everybody understood he was writing to believers, saints in Corinth. And yet throughout the letter after that, he launches into a series of reproofs and rebukes for things that they were really doing very wrong. They, they were being rebuked by Paul and by God and his word for their fleshly behavior. And it came out in all kinds of ways. We'll see more about that today. At the same time, Paul provided solutions for each of the problems that was, were festering in that church at that time. And as we saw last week, those solutions are rooted in Christ. We're never going to go through something in life where that's not true. You know, you can look at whatever it might be. You can look at suffering that you're going through. You can look at sinfulness that's a part of your life. Whatever it is, if you need, if you need to have direction in your life from the Lord, all of it comes from Christ in the power of his cross and resurrection. And as we saw last week, Paul starts with the cross because that's the corrective, that's the solution, that's the antidote to all fleshly behavior. There's a cross of Christ. Remember, when he died, we died. We died to our old man, the Bible says. That was all we were in Adam. And so, given that, given that God had a simple but incredibly powerful answer to our sinfulness in the cross of his son, then we turn to that. That's all we need. The, the, the power of the cross deals with all of the sinfulness, all of the sin in our bodies, everything. Our, our guilt before the Lord, all of that has been dealt with at the cross of Christ. And so the only remedy for them and for us, for any of our sinfulness, is the cross. But then we, Paul moves in the letter to the resurrection. By the end of the letter, he's going to have a whole chapter on resurrection. And it's really the resurrection of the body of Christ that he's going to talk about, the rapture. And so the resurrection, tied into, again, his resurrection, is our great hope and their great hope in the first century. 
And when you have that kind of hope and you know that 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 you're hoping for and anticipating could come to be at any moment, then that shapes your life or ought to. In other words, that should inspire them and us to be united as one body and to be obedient to the Lord, to behave properly in all the areas of church life that we're going to see in this letter. So again, it's really simple. All right, whenever you, wherever you are, you can just do the two things that Paul asks the church of Corinth to do. Look back to the cross whenever you're dealing with sinful behavior. Look forward to the rapture whenever you need some hope. And isn't that simple? It's just the death, the resurrect, death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Look back to the cross to deal with our sinfulness. Look forward to the rapture, the resurrection of the church. All right, now. We're going to start to look at this book today, again, from a high level. And I want to begin by imagining that we are back in that first century. We're in Corinth. There's a meeting of the elders of the church of Corinth. They've assembled for their monthly meeting. The agenda has been prepared, and it's being passed out right now to each one of the elders. And I want, you to sh- I want to show you the agenda. There are 11 items on the agenda for the elders of the church of Corinth in A.D. 54. You ready? Number one, divisions and boasts. The whole congregation is split in these different ways. And the big problem was that everyone was boasting in what they had, whether it's their, their favorite apostle, whether it was their spiritual gift, Whatever it was, whether they they thought they had freedom, whereas others didn't think they had freedom in a certain area, all of this was going on. There was just many, many divisions, boasting was going on, and then they had a total lack of wisdom. Well, that's just the first thing, elders, that we got to deal with, all right? How are we going to, what's going to happen? How does these divisions get healed? Well, and then after that, number two is that there's incest going on in the congregation. When I put this list together, I really thought about it this way. I was realizing that, you know what, here at Lighthouse Bible, if we had one of these, just one of these, it would be a major big deal that we'd have to deal with. There's 11 that's going on at the same time at the Church of Corinth. Number three, lawsuits. They were, what was happening was they were suing each other. And not only that, they were suing each other and they went out to the worldly courts because they thought that they, I don't know why they thought this, but they thought that somehow they would get a better result out there than if they brought it to the church and have the church resolve it. Because we don't have anything like that in the United States today. External litigation of an internal squabble. We have family, we have families do the same thing. One of the big tragedies is that somebody dies and they have a will and they, maybe they don't have a will and there's all these assets and money and there's four kids and by the end of how they figured it out, they're fighting in conflict and then they don't want to speak to each other anymore. And a couple of them already hired lawyers. Yeah, so this isn't foreign to us. But it should be foreign to the body of Christ. It shouldn't be going on. Okay, well if that wasn't bad enough, it turns out that some of the men in the congregation have been going to prostitutes in a very public way. It, what, they weren't hiding it. Okay? They were just going to prostitutes and everyone saw them do it and they didn't think there was any big deal. So the elders got to deal with that. Okay, by now I think I'd be taking some pills to try to help myself get through this meeting. <laughs> Divisions, incest, lawsuits, going to prostitutes and we're not done. 
Well, there's one there that, of course, is every generation has to deal with, marital problems. Okay, but this was a very public thing once again, as we're going to see when we get there. It had to do with uh, different things, like couples denying each other sex, like people wanting to get divorced because their spouse wasn't in church, and so forth. A lot of these going on, marital problems. And then we get to number six, which is food sacrificed to idols. In other words, they were eating food that was sacrificed to idols. They were dining in pagan temples. If they weren't rich enough or they didn't get an invite to a pagan temple dinner, they just went to the marketplace. Because you see, what happened was whatever wasn't eaten in the, in the dinner inside the temple, they sold to the marketplace to sell to people. So they were just having a great time eating this food sacrificed to idols. You can imagine how that would, that would uh, be a little bit disur- disturbing to the Christians when they see, usually, by the way, the leadership. Usually it was the wealthy. Who were, who were doing this, and, and at the time, the wealthy were also the sponsors of the house churches where these, where these churches would gather. So you can kind of see the tension that's going on there, and really the, the hypocrisy that's going on with that. Number seven, disorder in the worship service. In other words, they were gathering together. They weren't following any of the rules. There was total disorder. Um, there are, by the way, Paul's going to bring out in this letter that there are proper roles for men and women. And they were just, they didn't want any part of that. They didn't want any part. For whatever reason, um, the women in the congregation felt somehow that the liberation from their sins meant that they could then behave in a way where they can break all the former rules and conventions. And that was creating a big problem during the service. At that time, they had uh, a head covering for women, which signified their, their, their submission to authority. And they, they were throwing these out and saying, we don't, we don't need any authority anymore. We want to, we want to do everything the men do. All right? And uh, that was a problem. Of course, we don't have that problem today in the United States or not in the church. No, we don't have that. I mean, we don't have any women that are pastors or even bishops, do we? No, we don't have that. Yes. Yes, we do have that. And, and much worse going on today. In any event, that's seven. There's four more to go. Can you imagine sitting there in that meeting and just looking at, I'd, I'd say, <laughs> I'm not, I'm leaving this meeting. All right? You guys figure it out. How are we going to deal with divisions and incest and lawsuits going on all at the same time? I want you to understand all at the same time. Prostitutes being visited, all kinds of marital problems and conflicts. People going to idols, temples and having dinner. Disorder in the worship service. And then it even filters in and seeps into the Lord's Supper itself. There were abuses going on concerning the Lord's Supper. The divisions, primarily between rich people and poor people, were spilling over even into the Lord's Temple. The poor were being excluded from the best food. And and one brother went hungry while another one drank to excess. In getting ready for the Lord's Supper, can you picture that? I know, right? I can't either, but it was going on. So, so, you know, and when we get to the end of this, we're going to probably say, ha, that was them. We don't have any of those problems, you know. But, the, but yes, we do. And, and in those categories, we do. They may not be exactly what they were doing. And the reason why these things still exist 20 centuries later is because human nature hasn't changed. That just like there was arrogance in their congregation, well, from time to time, there's arrogance in our congregation. And so forth. So 
we're not all that different from them, even though this is really, you know, visible and public and, and everyone saw it and it was all at the same time. But these kind of things still go on. Controversy between rich and poor. They also had a big controversy about spiritual gifts. Whoops, that's still on that slide. It's big controversy about spiritual gifts. Now, you're in a congregation full of divisions. Okay, Rich and poor. People think they're better than others on different reasons. And what's the purpose of spiritual gifts, by the way? You know what it is? Well, yes, serve the body so that there's unity, too, in the body. So that those who would feel that they were lesser were given the better spiritual gifts. That explains why I'm standing behind this pulpit today. All right? It says that the ones that were of less presentable got the better gifts. In any event, um, there was a lot going on with that. They were even using the spiritual gift to foment dis- uh, divisions. Can, it's like, imagine the Lord looking up there and saying, and these are my children. But, you know, he gave the spiritual gifts for unity, to serve one another, so that there would be um, uh, people serving one another in the church, that the body would be not divided. They didn't care. All right? By the way, tongues, when it was on the scene, was was the biggest issue when it came to spiritual gifts. Because they thought that the better people got the more spectacular spiritual gift. So they thought people with tongues thought they were the best Christians of all. And they looked down upon everybody else. Yeah, this is what was going on. So big problem, ultimately division in the church. But then there were some who were denying the bodily resurrection of believers. They were saying, you know what? When they when you go into the grave, that's it. There's no resurrection. You know, and now remember they, they, they you might say, well how can they be a Christian and think there's no resurrection? Well that's actually a good question. That's, Paul's going to ask that same question. But you always have to remember where they're coming from. They're coming from a culture who didn't believe in the resurrection at all. All right? So they, they came from a place where they had all these ideas in their head, philosophical ideas, false religious ideas. Um, think about the Jehovah's Witnesses today that they believe something called soul sleep, that actually you don't exist until the, you know, the, the very last day you die and there's nothing there, and then somehow at the end you're back. So there's all kinds of things in religion and worldly viewpoint that would cause people to be in denial. We have that in the church. We have a lot of that in the church. We have a lot of, of um, rewriting the Bible because of things people don't believe anymore, like the lake of fire, for example. There's a lot of people that say, oh, that can't be true, and they deny it, and then they try to rationalize what that is when it shows up in the Bible. So we're not really all that different. And then finally, if there's somebody who hasn't been touched yet by all of the first ten, then there's giving. Then there's the giving in the collection, and they had problems with that. So I don't know about you, but this list is like pretty disheartening. If, if, honestly, if we had all of those things going on at the same time, um, I, I'd be really tempted to quit. I'd be, I'd be going through a directory of other churches and calling, hey, got an opening there? Hey, yeah. this is like unbelievable what's going on. But here's the interesting thing. You know, what, you know what you just got? You just got the outline of the first letter, first letter to the Corinthians church. This is the outline of the book. Let me show you that. Divisions and boasts are dealt with from chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 4, verse 21. 
all about that. Oh, and, and the solution. See, now, that's the thing you have to remember. Paul had, was dealing with problem and given a solution. And so you're going to see all the problems this morning. But really, we're going to really focus ultimately on the solutions. Chapter 5 is about incest, about a man having his father's wife. Chapter 6, the first 11 verses, are about the lawsuits. And he's basically going to say, listen, don't you know that one day the body of Christ is going to judge angels? So much more we should allow the body of Christ to judge disputes between us now. Okay? So that was, that's chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Um, whoops. And that, the last part of chapter 6, from verse 12 to verse 20, deals with that issue of the men going to prostitutes. We're going to see that that was going on as part of the worship of false goddesses in, temp- in the temple. Marital problems are dealt with in chapter 7. One of the least popular chapters in the Bible, by the way. You know, people don't want to deal with what's said in chapter 7 of the, of the book of 1 Corinthians. Why? Because it basically says that, listen, God created marriage as an uh, as a, as a institution, as a unity that shall not be broken. That's God's vision of it. And so that they were going to, to, the, to the tall and saying, you know, hey, can, can, we, can we divorce our spouse? Because I don't think they're a believer. I, I, I want to divorce. And he would say, no, don't do that. Maybe, maybe your influence in their life would cause them to believe in Christ and so forth. So there, there was a lot of um, people that were trying to get out of their marriages in one way or the other. There were also situations where fathers weren't allowing their daughters to get married. And, uh, and that was the other extreme. So Paul had to deal with a lot of things, and that's chapter 7 of the uh, letter to 1 Corinthians. Again, one of the least popular in the whole Bible. All right, next three chapters are all on the issue of food sacrificed to idols. As you might imagine, that's going to bring up a lot of different issues for people. Um, and Paul deals with them. He deals with the fact that some felt they were more enlightened than others, and that it wouldn't harm them to go there. And Paul said, listen, even if you have the freedom, because you know there's no such thing as an idol, really. It's just a statue. There's nothing behind it. Even so, what about your brother? What about your brother who still thinks there is power in that temple? If they see you going there, then they're going to be tempted to go there, but with a whole different set of thoughts in their head. So don't just think about yourself. Think about the others. And then he say at the end, listen, let's get, let's get back to the facts. You cannot be eating at a, at, a, at, a, at a temple that's demonic and then come here and eat the Lord's Supper. Chapter 11, the rest of the chapter is about, well, not the rest of the chapter, but from verse 2 to 16, this disorder, as I mentioned in the worship service. That's, that's dealt with in that section, chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. The abuses concerning the Lord's Supper are dealt with in chapter 11, 17 to 34. You know, most churches, when, they, when, they, when the Lord's Supper is, the, is brought up, I'm as guilty of this anyway. I just go from verse 23 to 27. Because that's the good part. How are we to celebrate the Lord's Supper together? But we can't ignore the fact that that is a piece of the problem. That there was a big problem going on in the church related to that. And that Paul had to mostly deal with the problem and then explain once again what it was really all about. So we need to understand that. 
We need to understand that when we gather together for the Lord's Supper, the last thing that we should have in our hearts or be involved in is any kind of conflict or feeling of superiority over another. If we have something against our brother, deal with it. Okay, Then come to the Lord's Supper. From chapters 12 through 14, those are all about the spiritual gifts. Again, this is an issue that can cause great division in the churches, and it did, especially in Corinth at that time. Paul dealt with this in three chapters he dedicated to dealing with that. Then, in chapter 15, he, he deals with, that's not right, chapter 15 is 1 to 58, so, not 1 to 18, anyway. Make that, make that, make sure you put down 1 to 58. It's a big chapter. Um, this is the, the people that were denying the resurrection. And Paul had to say to these people, listen, you know, the resurrection is part of the gospel. If you, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you've believed in vain. You haven't believed the whole gospel. If you think the gospel is just his death, then you don't believe the gospel because it's also his resurrection. Very serious charge when you think about it. And then he goes on to explain in great detail, the significance of the resurrection, starting with Christ, then with us, and then he ends up with the most amazing description, really, of our bodies being transformed into bodies like Christ. In other words, the rapture itself is the last part of chapter 15. There's a, there's an, that's a great example of where he starts with the problem and, 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 and confronts it and rebukes it for what it is, but then as the chapter moves on, he gets into the whole greatness of the solution. And, and hopefully we spend a lot of time there. Because as you know, our, our spiritual life is set up so that we walk by means of the Spirit so we don't carry out the desires of the flesh. He's moving us forward, but he's, that the Lord is never going to ignore the situations of sinfulness and rebellion that are, in, that are in existence at any time. He's going to deal with that first. Remember we saw that last week, rebuke before instruction and exhortation. Okay. Then the last chapter, really, not, not the whole chapter, but the first four verses is about giving in the collection and how that's supposed to work. All right. Again, I just gave you the outline of the letter of Corinthians, so I hope you see that it is structured around the problems that Paul learned were going on at that church in Corinth, those saints. All right, so now I want you to think about the fact that why did Paul and Timothy and Sosthenes have to deal? Why would they have their hands full with this crowd? What, what's the explanation for all of these things going wrong in that church at that time? And I want to, that's why the next thing we're going to do is we're going to learn about the culture at that time a little bit. We're going to see the city of Corinth and how the city influences the saints at Corinth. Just, and the thing about it is, is that we, we have to ask the same question of ourselves. As a matter of fact, as we go through this material about the city of Corinth, I want you to be thinking about a question, and it's this. How might our worldly culture today be seeping into our church? Our worldly culture today has its own set of problems and threats. And, and, and you know, we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. I mean, we're, we, are, yeah, we are just like the saints in Corinth in the sense that we've been redeemed and we've been taught, and yet at the same time, because we still have flesh, we're going to be enticed by things going on in the world. To think that, you've over, that you're, that's not going to be a, a problem for you is arrogance. 
Because we are susceptible to those things as long as we're in these bodies. And so you want to ask the question, well, what about our culture today might be seeping into our church? All right. So next, let's learn about the city of Corinth in the first century. Here's all you need to know about the city of Corinth. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. We'll see more about that. You know, that might explain the loss part of the title today. New loss, Lulu. In any event, it was the party city of the ancient world. It was the place people went where, they did, where no one would know who they were from back home. They'd have money to spend, and boy, did they spend it. All the different kind of luxuries and pleasures that you could imagine in the ancient world were there for you in the city of Corinth. So again, think about in our day and age. Okay, so there's, there's a lot of business being, being um, done in this city of Corinth. There's a lot of sinfulness. There's a lot of sailors. We'll see more about that. All rolled into one city. It's kind of like New York, Las Vegas, and Honolulu all in one. Now, do you see the title of today's message? All right, New Las Lulu. So, so just think about that. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that our culture has some of the same problems. And that if we're not alert, and even if we are alert, there's a big possibility that those will seep into the church. You know, the church, the big issue, a big church in all of America, but also our church. So that's what we want to be thinking about. How might the worldly culture that we're in today be seeping into our church today? All right, Corinth was probably the largest city in Greece at the time. Remember we saw that Colossae, the last book that we studied, was a really tiny, tiny population? This is like the total opposite of that. So you move from Asia to Greece, now all of a sudden Paul's writing a letter to the, to the saints in probably the largest city in Greece at the time. It had a population of over half a million people. Now that might not seem like much today, but in the ancient world, that was a huge city. I don't know whether you realize, but there weren't as many people on the planet in the first century as there are today. So a half a million people in a city was big, very big. So it had become a cosmopolitan city, and all the vices that are usually associated with that kind of a city were there. I want to give you some information now about the geography of the city of Corinth and of Corinth generally. So this is, by the way, what are we looking at? Well, if you look on the side here, it's kind of, kind of small. But that box, of course, tells you where this is. In other words, that's, that's exploded up here. We'll talk about this in a minute. But I hope you can see that this part of Greece is sort of midway between Rome and the Asian, what was called the province of Asia. Today it's Turkey. All right. By the way, down here, we'll get into this in a minute, with some dangerous, very dangerous waters. So here's Corinth, though. I want you to notice where it is. Can you see how uh, there's land here, and you can go around here with your ship, and it takes a long time, and there's dangerous waters here. But interestingly enough, on one side of Corinth, you have the Adriatic on the sea, and the other side, you have the Aegean Sea. And at this place, it was only four miles long. So when, we, when the United States wanted to start shipping all over the world at the end of the 19th century, and we looked at, we had the Atlantic on one side and the Pacific on the other, and the United States was huge. If you had to bring stuff all across the United States, the Pacific Ocean back then, it was a, it was a job, it was a real challenge. So what, what did the United States do? 
Anybody know? The Panama Canal. Why? Because it's a really narrow isthmus, they call it. The isthmus of Panama. Well, that's an isthmus too, right there. Well, so what happened was they built, and we'll get into this in a minute, yeah, they basically built a land canal. In other words, they didn't dig so that you could uh, uh, have your boats go through, but they made it on tracks so that your boats could ride on the tracks and get to the other side. Pretty ingenious. All right, so they're on a narrow land bridge, but the land bridge is not only an issue for transportation, you know, east to west, east to west, west to east, it was also a land bridge between the southern Greece and northern Greece. So when you start to picture that, you have, these, you have ships that want to go here and get to the province of Asia and back to Rome. And you have the, the, the business and commerce and the southern part of Greece would like to trade with those on the northern part. So what do you think is going on here? Anybody? What would happen, in between, what would, happen would be that there would be Lots of merchants and all kinds of people that would be trading down this way. And then you'd have the, the ships and the seamen and the merchants that would also be going here through here on their way there. So what you had was you had this place where a lot of people were hanging out in the middle of a journey, a little of a trip. And they wanted to take a little break while they were in Corinth. And they, they were not from Corinth. Some of them would, would live there later, but they all gathered there. And so John, just think about what that might be. So, again, the ancients, they made that four-mile cutout track connecting the two ports on either side, here and here. And then, again, the, the, the ships and the cargo could be hauled across that four-mile stretch, save time and avoid that dangerous sea journey. Some of the most dangerous waters in the Mediterranean were right here, right off the southern coast of Greece. All right. So that meant there were always a lot of sailors and merchants and traders and so forth. Why? Because Corinth was an was a isthmus. It was called the master of two harbors. It meant that on either side, there were uh, ships coming back and forth. And not only that, it was a natural crossroads for land travel, for both. It was a crossroads for land and sea travel. I find that kind of interesting. Let's go back to the map. So in other words... It was, a, it was north to south, okay, it was this crossroads. East to west, it was that crossroads. Can you see how it makes the cross? I find that interesting because that was the solution to all the fleshliness, was the cross of Jesus Christ, and their whole world revolved around two crossroads. All right. So it became a city of great wealth and great pleasure. People went there with money to spend, indulging themselves. Not only that, but the greatest organized sporting event in the first century of the Roman Empire were the Isthmus Games. And they were held right on that Isthmus where Corinth was. And this meant that people who loved athletics and sports also flocked to Corinth. Please look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9. You see, many things that are in the letter can be explained by what was happening in this city at this time. And I want to, see, I want to show you a couple of examples of that. Greatest organized games 
like the Olympics were called the Isthmus Games. They were held in the, in the, on that Isthmus just north of Corinth. So sports people, people who loved athletics, they went to Corinth and they hung out for those games. It's no accident, therefore, that Paul uses the metaphor of a race in urging the Corinthian saints to go for the gold with their Christian lives. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who, particip- who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He was talking to the saints at Corinth, and probably particularly those who would attend this Isthmus Games, and he was using that as an illustration. He was basically saying this. He's saying if people of the world can exercise self-control in order to achieve a goal, how much more ought we who have the Spirit in our hearts and have the greatest hope of all be exercising self-control, not letting our flesh go haywire. That's the message he had. He says, think about the Christian life as a race that you're trying to win and, and approach it that way. All right. So, so Corinth was famous in many ways, a sports town, party city, and a center of trade. But I want to throw one additional element in here, and it makes this even more dangerous and seductive soup of worldliness, and that is religion. At that time, there were a wide variety, a wide variety of false religions and gods and cults, including the, what's called the imperial cult. And that meant that at the time, the emperor of Rome, Roman Empire was worshipped as a god. Now, I want, I want to think, think about that today. Well, we, we have examples of that today, like North Korea. <laughs> you know, that, that, the leader of North Korea is worshipped as a god in that country. Well, I want to ask a question then. If somebody were to stand up and say, he's not, he's not a real God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only God. What do you think would happen to them in North Korea today? Yeah, they'd be killed. So what do you think might be happening in Corinth if they stood up and said that? They'd be persecuted. So if, if that's the case and you want to you wanna rise in society and you want to be part of the aristocracy of Corinth... What are you going to do when it comes to the religions and the cults and the imperial cult above all? You're going to compromise. You're going to compromise because that's more important to you. And that's what was going on too. They, they, were, they were trying to fit in. And that became a real threat, of course, to the church. So here we have this religious melting pot. All kinds of religions flourishing side by side. And many people, especially the most prominent, you know, they decided, you know what, we're going to cover our bases. They found this expression on a bit, a bit of papyrus that was dug out in Corinth. I pray to all gods. That's their attitude. A lot of the people in there. I don't want to get anybody angry at me. You know, Islam is a religion of peace. All right, that kind of thing. So imagine if you live in a community where the grocer is from India and worships Vishnu, and then the dry cleaning person worships Allah, and then there's a sign in the window at a strip mall down the block announcing a shrine to Buddha. A little farther down, you see stained glass windows. They're giving homage to Mary, the mother of God. Oh, wait, you don't have to imagine that, do you? That's going on in our culture today, right? All kinds of religions and all of that. 
And so the pressure from society is to get things that everybody can agree on. So they would do something similar. They would say, I'll go to the shrine of Venus in the morning. I'll go to Apollo's in the afternoon. I'm going to stop and visit and worship the statue of the emperor on the way home from yoga class. I'm going to eat at the temple to Zeus because they had the best idol meat in town. And then I'm going to head over to the Jewish synagogue for a little while. And I'll end up at the end of the day at the home of Titius Justice because there's Bible class at seven. That's the way they handle it. And that's the way a lot of people handle religion today. So make no mistake, though, there was a strong connection in those days between idol worship, eating and drinking, and sex. Interesting. Can you see how that would be very seductive to a worldly person? I mean, imagine if you were told, you know what, the best way to worship God is to have sex with a prostitute. Sign me up, a lot of men would say. See, the Satan knows what he's doing. He knows if he can tie things that people really like to a false religion, he knows that they're going to be adherents to that false religion, whatever it might be. Today, people say, you know what? I want to evolve as a human being. Oh, you believe in evolution? You think humans can evolve and become gods? Great. I got this temple in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah you'd like to visit. He's always at this. He's always understanding people's weaknesses and temptations and then creating some kind of false religion around that so that they're drawn into it. Okay. And a lot of times this was going on in the houses of the well-to-do. Sometimes this was happening in a temple dedicated to an idol, a false god. Matter of fact, Corinth, and this had gone back 500 years, was the center of a cult to Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of erotic love. So can you see why there's a connection here between the the worship of Aphrodite and sexual misbehavior? Because that was what she was all about. The highest hill of the city had the pagan temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And that temple was full of religious prostitutes. Seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it, to us? Religious prostitutes. But that back then, yes. And they they were there to serve the... The worshipers. As a matter of fact, the Greek term Corinthia zomai, and that literally means to behave like a Corinthian, it meant to practice fornication. That's how closely the Corinthians were to that kind of behavior. You know, we have we have some modern examples of that. For example, I don't know if you know what this is, but I'll tell you in a minute. I'll give you a clue. This was Yugoslavia in 1989, and then in 1991, you started to have like Serbia. Bosnia, so forth, Croatia. And then by today, look at it. About eight different countries. Yeah, and this, this happens to be in the part of the world called the Balkans. So we, we invented a word called balkanization to mean when this happens. When, when one large entity splits up into a lot smaller ones. So we took a geography, Bal- the Balkans, and made it into a word. Well, same thing with this Corinthia, Corinthia Zomai. It meant to practice fornication. There's also a lot of drinking going on. Matter of fact, whenever a Corinthian appeared in a Greek play, he was almost always portrayed as drunk. You know, happy St. Patrick's Day. But, <laughs> all right, so, so suffice to say that Corinth had a well-deserved reputation for immorality. Not only that, but 200 years before Paul visited Corinth, the Romans had crushed a rebellion there. 
the Greek city-states were rebelling against Rome at the time, and Rome had enough. They sent an army there, and they totally wiped out the place. As a matter of fact, they killed all the men, and they sold all the women and children into slavery. In other words, there was nothing left, including people. The place was deserted. However, if you think about the geography, you would think at some point maybe one of the future Caesars would say, wait a minute, I think that would be a good place to colonize. Let's get our people over there. And that's what exactly what happened. A hundred years later, a fellow by the name of Julius Caesar, I know none of you have ever heard of him, but he decided to establish a Roman colony on that site. So, so when Paul ended up evangelizing there, a hundred years after that, he found all kinds of people. It was a Roman city now, but there were Romans, Greeks, Jews, and peoples from all the other nations across the Roman Empire. Why? Because it was the center of trade. It was the center of trade, and they, they designed it that way. Rome sent their own colonists, and these were the kind of people that they sent. They colonized Corinth with the poor, the former slaves, and military veterans. Bring me your tired, your poor, huddled masses, yearning to be free. What's that? Statue of Liberty. See, we, we are colonized with the same thing. The state of Georgia used to be a penal colony where they sent all the, all the prisoners down there. So up there now. I'm from New England. Was down. Yeah, so in other words, kind of similarities there between how the Corinth was formed and how the United States was formed in many ways. But here's the thing. If you've got a deserted place and you start sending people there, there's no pecking order yet. In other words, there's no aristocracy in place. You know how today we have an aristocracy in place, you know, the rich and the, you know, the generations of, of a certain name like Kennedy or Bush or whatever, and they're the aristocracy, right? They didn't have anything like that. It was wide open, like the Wild West in Corinth. And so what do you think happened? They started competing with one another. The, the colonists there started competing with one another for the prize of being part of the new aristocracy. Because we don't know anything about that in the United States. You know, after the, after, the, after the Revolutionary War, one of the big things about the Revolutionary War was to throw out aristocracy in the sense of the kings and the princes and all of that. So we had a fresh start too. I mean, you still, I, I walk around my neighborhood and I still see a sign on the, one of the lawns that says, Descendant of the Mayflower. You know, that's now a big deal. But same kind of thing. They're competing, 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 competing. Now, why would, why would I talk about that? Well, what was going on at the church at Corinth? Competing, 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 competing. You see, you can't escape having the world try to get into the church. It's always going to happen. That's why one of the greatest dangers is when, there's, when the state and the government and the church get together. Because now the church has opened its doors wide open to the world. That's why anytime people want to see like, you know, the church getting together with the state to wipe out poverty or go against abortion or anything like that, turn around the other way. Even prayer in public schools, that's not good. Because you might think today, oh, well, you know, we're, we got a Christian people. We're going to have prayers to, the, to our God. Well, guess what? How about in Michigan today? What do you think if they had prayer in public schools? You know what the kids would be praying to? Allah, yeah. And, and, and um, the biggest denomination among Christianity, even the United States, is Roman Catholicism. Can you picture it? Hail Mary, Mother of God. That would be going on in a lot of the public schools. So, no, let's keep them separate. The church is over here, the government and the state's over there. Okay, so 
But here, there was all kinds of divisions and rivalries in the city, and it spilled over into the church. But if you think about it, what percentage of the United States would count as aristocrats? The 1%, there's a good number. What does that mean? It means that 99% aren't. And as a matter of fact, that's what happened in Corinth. There were a few that became really rich, became the aristocracy, and left the others behind. The overwhelming majority of the people were poor. Were poor. One writer would not even set foot in the city, and he explained why. He said this, I learned in a short time the nauseating behavior of the rich and the misery of the poor. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 11. That was in the city. Nauseating behavior of the rich, misery of the poor. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, is it? For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry, and the other is drunk. That's Corinthian culture, isn't it? The rich have great, delicious food. The poor have nothing. The rich have the luxury of getting drunk, and they do. Each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? In other words, that's great. If you want to do that, I'm not condemning good food, but do it in your house. Why? Because if you come to the, to the Lord's Supper and you come to the congregation, yeah, there's a few rich people, but there's an awful lot of poor. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the, the wise. You see it? The Lord was concerned about the 99, too. And he was saying, you know, you have the freedom, you know, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy, but please don't use it as a club and as a way of shaming the poor people. So that's why he said, stay at home with that. Why? Notice what he says, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? That was going on in the culture. That was going on in the church. I could talk about some commercials on television now, but there's some now I watch now and I'm like, man, that, the only thing that is about is trying to make the few that can own that car feel great about themselves and, and shame everybody who doesn't have the ability to have one. So this isn't all that foreign to our culture. And he, Paul, the last thing he wants to do is praise that. Make no mistake, he did not rebuke them for their wealth. He didn't. He didn't say it's wrong to be wealthy. Not at all. Wealthy people supported the church. Wealthy people welcomed people in their homes. But what he did say was rebuke them for their insensitivity to the needs of the poor. That they turn their hearts cold against the poor. It's what John says. You know, if you have the world's goods and one among you is in need, don't harden your heart. Don't close your heart to them. Understand their, their, their needs, their situation, their brothers and sisters in the Lord. So I hope you can see that in many, many ways, what was going wrong in the city of Corinth, the illnesses in their culture, had crept into the church in Corinth. Okay. Or let's go back to that question I asked at the beginning today. What about us? 
As we've gone through this material today about the city of Corinth in the first century, you may have noticed some similarities between then and now. There's a lot of similarity between Corinth in the first century and America in the 21st century. Don't we have lavish displays of wealth? And then right side by side with gripping poverty? Yeah, we do. Just go to the northwest. Go to San Francisco. Don't we have lavish displays of wealth, gripping poverty? Aren't the people tempted in the United States with all kinds of false religion and self-indulgence? Don't we have all kinds of self-indulgence? And it's marketed and it's encouraged? Of course we do. And doesn't our culture today promote the idea that, you know, all religions are pretty much the same? Like that, you know, that bumper sticker coexists. What is that all about? It's saying, you know what? I look around and there's the Muslims and Jews and Christians and Buddhists and Hindus. Man, let's just all get along. Let's just kind of say, you know what? Forget about it. We're just going to say all religions are fine. We definitely have that in our culture today, too. But the question is, how might the infections of our culture be making our church ill? How might some of those things be seeping into the church around the country and even here? We need to ask that question. That's one of the main reasons why one would study the letter of 1 Corinthians. To have our eyes opened to what could be going on. To have our eyes opened to what happens when the flesh has no self-control. And how we're all able to be in that situation. We can be arrogant. So the question then is, is what might cause divisions in our congregation? What things are more important to people than God's word and God's people? How do worldly concerns pre- prevent us from obeying the Lord's commands? Prevent us from loving one another? Prevent us from praying? Prevent us from giving to those in need? I want you to think about your own life and ask yourself a question. If I'm not praying as much as I want to, I think I ought to, Why? What is it that is taking up my time and my energy so that I don't feel like praying? I'll guarantee you it's something about our culture, our worldliness. Now, it might not. It might be an illness. It might be duties that you have to have. But for a lot of us, it's just easier to turn on the television than it is to go pray, for example. All right. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Giving to those who are in need. I mean, if you're lambasted by all of these television commercials and television shows and showing how the rich live and how you really ought to have this, you really ought to have that, all of a sudden, when you're starting to be seduced in that direction, now you don't have any money to give. Or you think you don't, even though we live in the richest, wealthiest society of all time. How about exercising spiritual gifts? What are the worldly concerns that may prevent us, some of us, from exercising our gifts. Somebody has the gift of teaching, but something's preventing them from teaching. Somebody has the gift of giving, but they're not giving. Why? Somebody has the gift of encouragement, but they don't have time to encourage people. What's that all about? What are the things that are stopping that from happening? You see, we are not that much different from the Corinthian saints in the first century. We have flesh just like they did. We can become just as arrogant as they were. So in closing today, I would encourage all of us to adopt an attitude that we find with a tax collector in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Please turn to Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. 
We all can do this. All it is is an attitude. All it is is a humility. Whenever we find ourselves realizing we're being arrogant or selfish, or thinking somehow that we're pleasing God with some practices that we're doing, how how we think about, wait a minute, you know what, I see all this in the world, but man, I've mastered that. Look at my Christian habits. I'm reading the Bible. You know, I'm going to church. And, but, but that's great. But if we start to use it to think I'm better than them, then it's just all going out. Okay, let's look at this. this uh, Jesus tells a parable. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The dregs of society, may I add, at that time. Tax collector. Well, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Be careful when you start to realize that you're really praying to yourself. Or, you know, he was praying to himself. God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. Swindlers. Unjust. Adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. Imagine the shame that that guy felt at that moment. Even this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all that I get. I've arrived. I'm, I'm better in God's eyes than this guy and all those unjust swindlers and adulterers. But Jesus went on. The tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast. That was a sign of grief in those days, sign of repentance. And he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, rather than the proud Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let that be our attitude, our thinking, as we approach this letter of 1 Corinthians. Let us be like what what Paul asked the Galatian churches to be. When you find somebody caught in a trespass, you know, be careful because so that you will not be tempted, but instead restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So next week, when we gather together, we're going to begin our chapter-by-chapter study of the first letter to the Church of God at Corinth. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for helping us to have more insight into how the letter of 1 Corinthians relates to our lives and how we must approach it with an attitude of humility, with allowing your word to rebuke in us as well, and also so that we understand who we really are without you, and that we do need your mercy, and we know that we got your mercy at the cross, and so that we know that we're, other than that, we're no different from anybody else. And so help us to realize that as we go through the different chapters of this book. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's never forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in Christ will never perish, but has eternal life. And the gospel is simple. It just means that we're all sinners. But God took his only son, Jesus Christ, God, and he had him born of a woman. And that moment forward, 
Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Being in the flesh, though sinless, he was able to die, and he did for our sins. And he was buried to show everybody he really died. And then three days later, God the Father raised him out of that grave as a definitive sign that he is everything he says he is. God in the flesh and Savior. So that that's who we are to believe. And believing is simple. Oh, you know what believing really is? It's just taking God at his word. Okay, you told me that. I'm taking you at your word. You've given me the Savior. Yeah, I believe that he's my Savior. A little kid one time heard the gospel and he said, so wait a minute. What you're saying is Jesus Christ died for sinners. I'm a sinner. Jesus Christ died for me. That person was justified at that moment. It's that simple. Don't make it complicated. Maybe getting a person there is complicated. But once they're there, it's a simple message. All right. One other reminder that we will be having Bible study this Thursday. Once again, March 21st, 7 p.m. Try not to be tempted to go to Zeus's temple before you get there. Our giving policy is simple. We don't tithe. We don't, you know, we don't solicit donations. However, we do have needs. But the way we go about it is to trust the people and to trust what God said, which is that when people understand that they've been blessed and that they want to support either the poor or the ministries that we have here, then that will motivate you to give. The Spirit will actually motivate you to give. Um, that's what we, we, that's, we respect your freedom. Again, that doesn't mean we don't have needs. It doesn't mean that you don't have to give. It just means that you have the freedom to give. All right, let's close in prayer once again. Father, thank you. Thank you for this congregation, Lord. We thank you that we have brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you that we know from your word that we are the body of Christ and that you've placed him at the head of all creation and you've placed him over us as, you, as his body, the fullness of all. And so, Father, as also as we close today, we would just ask that you would give us humble, great, grateful hearts and that that may be motivation for how we live. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Any questions you have today about the message, the gospel, or anything else, I will be available right in front, sitting down. You can come up and speak to me after service. And uh, you can take all of my time that you need. I might regret just saying that. You're dismissed. Enjoy the day.